says on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us what a great statement of faith do you love to worship the Lord I mean, he has created us for this he has created us for th that's why you exist that's why I exist God is doing some amazing things in, in our city and, and through Impact Ministries, you know the impact that we've had within the community by adopting a school and, and doing some other things that we believe and, and, and we have done, that the church needs to be active in the community and the church needs to get involved in the community. And, and here's just a great thing that took place, and I just want to make you aware of it that happened this last week, is, is a here while back, the Pueblo chieftain ran a series of articles called Broken and looked at the problems of Pueblo. And they looked at and they identified four or five problems that Pueblo had, teen pregnancies and poverty and education and unwed mothers and, and those kinds of things. And so they began looking, and then all of a sudden, a couple of weeks ago, I received a letter from uh, Bob Rawlings with the Pueblo chieftain and Steve Henson. And, and they said, you know, it's one thing just to identify the problems within a community, but it's kind of hypocritical to identify the problems and then not want to do anything about it. And so they says, we got to do something about it. So they held a summit lunch, and the summit lunch was they brought about a handful of leaders throughout the community together uh, uh, at the Pueblo Country Club. And the people that were there were judges and city commissioners and city manager and, and some politicians and, and uh, some leaders of some different organizations. And uh, we were invited to the table. And so I went. And I represented uh, Fellowship of the Rockies, and we just began talking about the problems and, and uh, that, that there are some people that have been in Pueblo so long that have developed the mentality that it can just never change here. And so we begin looking at some ways, and so uh, you'll, you'll hear more about that later because it's just going to be ongoing focus, and, and I'm just so proud of you, and I'm so proud of our church that a church was, was just invited to the table. Uh, because of the things that we've let out and done in the community with Impact Ministries, adopting a uh, Span Elementary single mom oil change and, and some of the benevolent stuff and some of the things that we've done. And so one, one, one opportunity that you have this morning called Baby Bottle Boomerang, a Caring Pregnancy Center is, is, is an organization that we have written into our budget. Uh, we believe that there shouldn't be a duplication of efforts. And the, if there's a ministry in town that's doing something better than we could do, then let's just fund it. I mean, it's not about Fellowship the Rockies. It's about us getting involved. And, and so we've been involved with them for a number of years. And so, so Baby Bottle Boomerang is this. And in case you don't know about the Caring Pregnancy, uh, it helps with teen pregnancy. They do, they do classes. They do prenatal classes. They do pregnancy testing. They have sonograms. They uh, uh, test for STDs. They do... Uh, 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 children's classes I should think of the word and I forgot the word but they offer assistance with baby formula and, and baby beds and diapers and all that other stuff and so they do a wide range of things so baby bottle boomerang is this is that uh, you take a baby bottle on the way out you'll have a chance to grab one you take a baby bottle fill it with your loose change you know the change that you dump in your console or on the dresser that your wife scrapes out to buy Starbucks and, and <laughs> well, it may cost you a Starbucks but uh, but you take your loose change and you fill the baby bottle now listen we had to beg for 500 baby bottles because there hasn't ever been a church that asked for 500 baby bottles. And so uh, we, we got 500 baby bottles. And the unfortunate thing is, is we only got about 100 left. So run, don't walk. <laughs>
And after the service, you can grab one. Here's the great thing. Uh, on average, these baby bottles will fill up about $20 and change. So you can do the math, and we're about ready to bless Caring Pregnancy Center with about ten grand. Uh, is what we're going to do, and we're going to underwrite their ministry. So, if you want to be a part of that, join us. You know what? If they run out of baby bottles, it's about 89 cents. You can buy your own. We'll accept it. And then we'll give you four to six weeks, bring it back here, and then we'll get a dump truck or whatever you need because it gets heavy. And we'll, we'll haul it over there. It'll be a great deal. And so also, life group leaders, we still need life group leaders. We need... Uh, uh, host homes, there's a sign up in there. You can fill that out. And if you'd like to lead, we're going to make it so easy and dump it in the basket or in the box at the end of the service. Well, okay. Now, I've got, a, I've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 14. We're going to go all the way to 7, verse 1. Now, listen, you know this. The, the verse markers in your Bible and chapter breaks in your Bible are not inspired of God. Fact is, you know where they came from? A traveling evangelist that rode horseback was riding horseback and he had trouble referencing scripture and getting people to go to scripture with him. So he would take and write out verse markers and chapter markers. So sometimes it breaks a thought as today. And that's why we're going to go into chapter 7, verse 1, because that's when Paul ends his thought. And listen, I've got a lot of ground to cover as we get into this. Just a little disclaimer and warning to parents. We're going to talk about the issue of sex. This is what Paul talks about, and the church should not be afraid to talk about sex. And so if you have young children and, and you haven't had the talk or you don't want to answer a bunch of questions after the service, and, and uh, then you know what? Feel free. It won't bother me. You can slip out, uh, take them to children's ministry, and come back yet. And uh, I just didn't want to say anything that, that you weren't prepared for. Okay. So Paul begins talking to a culture, to a community, that the Corinthian, just so you understand... It was sex, craze, sex, obsessed. A lot of times we look at our culture as like, like there's never been a culture more sex, craze, sex, obsessed than us. Listen, in some ways we don't hold a candle to what was going on in Corinth. Corinth, the majority of the women were prostitutes. They had a religion there that sex was a part of the worship. They had orgies. They had sex at the altar. And so it was full-blown, in-your-face sex, promiscuity. fact is... This last week, USA Today read an article. It was, it was sex on TV, the uncut and the unavoidable. Did you know last week was the first time that, that basic ca cable pushed the limits of sex to a whole new level? That you now on basic cable, I'm not talking about the paid movie ca uh, channels. I'm talking about just basic cable. You know last week you could see full frontal nudity. You could see heterosexual, homosexual sex. You could see orgies, group sex. We've come so far since the 50s, right? I mean, for those of you that are as old as me and you're kind of aware of that, I mean, in the, the, the 50s, poor Laura and Rob, they couldn't even sleep in the same bed. Remember that? I mean, married couples on TV could not be even be filmed in the same bed, and then the 60s came. Remember, I Dream a Genie? I mean, Barbara Eden, in her genie outfit, she wasn't even allowed. It was forbidden to video or to, to tape or to show her belly button. I mean, it was back in the days where the shows were, were just, you know, Andy Griffith's show. You know, Andy Griffith's show was never the same after Barney left. That's just my thought, but <laughs> just an ADD moment. I know it doesn't even matter. <laughs> just never the same. And so anyway, so then the 70s came on. 
And Charlie's Angels, remember that? And all of a sudden the outfits got more revealing and, and they started showing more. And now then what they're saying is what USA Today says is we're in an arms race on TV, on sex, on, on TV, uncut, unvarnished, uh, full-blown because there's a, there's a dwindling amount of, of advertising dollars and the downturn in the recession. There's more and more channels on TV, the com competition. And so they're going to amp up what is on TV because they know sex sells. So really and truly when we look at this issue, we have some of the same struggles. So Paul begins to give, talk about this issue of moral purity and he gives three principles that it directly applies to us, directly applies to our life. And I know I'm going to get really personal, especially towards the end of this message, but it's, it's just what Paul talks about, about this issue of, of, of moral purity and how to maintain moral purity. And so the first thing that he taught them was this. He says, you need to acknowledge that close relationships have great power in your life. You have got to come to the point to understand that the great, those close relationships, I'm not talking about casual relationships. I'm talking about the close ones the ones that you ask for advice, the ones that influence you. Paul is saying that you've got to understand this. Close relationships have great power in your life. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, highly controversial subject and highly controversial passage. We'll try to understand it to the very best of our ability this morning. But Scripture says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So Paul was telling that you've got to understand this, the relationships around you, the, your marriages, the close relationships around you have great influence and great power in your life. And listen, Paul is teaching them and he's using the Old Testament because this reference to don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Now a lot of people will ask today, does the Old Testament, I mean does the Old Testament, is it still relevant today? Does it still have any, is, can you still, and the answer is yes, every New Testament writer taught out of the New Testament. Every New Testament writer used, I'm at the Old Testament, used the Old Testament as a, re Jesus himself taught from the Old Testament. So there's a lot of times where the Old Testament can teach us some things. And here's what it says in Deuteronomy 22, 9 and 11. He begins to, to, to reference that. And there's great insight we can gain from this. He said, or the scripture said in Deuteronomy, You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown in the yield of your vineyard. So Paul begins re referencing Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says this. It's just a farming principle that you shouldn't sow your field. You shouldn't plant two types of seeds in your plant. Why? They have different natures. They grow differently. Um, Karen and I learned this when we were in Houston and, and uh, we had a garden for the very first time. And we learned that, you know what? Plants grow differently. There's some that are a stalk, there's some that are a vine, and there's some that are, are crawlers. I mean, you plant cucumbers next to anything, the cucumbers will just trash anything. I mean, it, nothing will be able to grow if, if you don't understand that. You go past farms in Pueblo, you know this. There's only one kind of plant. Why? They understand. You can't mix a bunch of seeds and throw them in a crop. Oh, you can. Paul's not saying you can't do it. Paul said, you can do it. It just won't end well. You can do it. It's just not preferred. And he goes on, Deuteronomy goes on and says, says, and you shall not plow with ox and a donkey together. 
He said, in other words, ox and donkey had two types of different natures. Fact is, an ox was seen as a clean animal. The donkey was seen as an unclean animal. The, but, but their natures were different. The ox was seen as, as consistent and steady and, and, and wanting to please. A hard worker, not a donkey, seen as stubborn, rebellious, difficult. And, and what he was saying is, you can't yoke them together. They, you can. You can not the issue whether you can or you can't. The issue is this, you can. It just won't end well. Because their natures will fight against each other. They're, they have two different types of natures. Then he goes on in Deuteronomy. He says, in case you don't understand the, the farming application and in case you don't understand the plowing application or illustration, let's try one more. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Did you know that's very rare? Fact is, all these are still very rare today. You don't see crops mixed together, two different types of seeds. You don't see an ox and a donkey yoked together to plow. And you don't find clothing with wool and linen together. Why? Because wool and linen has two different types of nature. Wool is soft. It's pliable. It stretches. Linen is abrasive, it's tough, and you, you weave wool and linen together. Guess what happens? The linen is abrasive, and it wears the wool out. It frays it. Not only that, when you wash them, they shrink totally differently. They have two different types of, of natures. And so what, what Paul was trying to help them to understand is this, is that there are certain things in life that are fundamentally incompatible. There are certain things in life that were never meant to be yoked together, to be brought together. And he says, in the issue of believer and non-believer, when, when a person becomes a believer, God gives them a new nature. See, the nature between the non-believer and the believer is totally different. It's diametrically opposed. Look at this, First, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, is, the old is passed away and behold, the new has come. Your nature isn't the same. You don't have the same nature as a non-believer. And, and God calls us to have a new nature and, and to be separate from the world. Did you know that's what the name church means? comes from a Greek word, ekklesia, which means the called out ones. It's what church means. And Paul says, he talks about, he talks about this issue of isolation versus insulation. Now listen, I know some churches that have, have carried this to, to the, the extreme and this, this doctrine all the way out to where they've applied it, they've misapplied it, if you will. I know there are some churches that say you should not shop anywhere where a non-Christian owns it or, or non-Christians go. You shouldn't go to places where liquor is sold. You, um, you, you, you shouldn't go to places where there's non-believers and, and, and all of these other things that, that they'll push. And, and you know, I come from the Bible Belt and was at a mega church before we came here. And in some respects, the churches in the Bible Belt have this isolationist mentality. In the church that I was at, we had a family life center. We had a, it had a swimming pool, Olympic-sized swimming pool. We had full racquetball, uh, two gyms. We had weightlifting. We had a conference center. Uh, we had exercise equipment. Uh, we had a bowling alley. 
And the thought was, guess what? As believers, we don't even have to hang out with non-believers. We don't have to work out with them. We don't have to bowl with them. Just go to a place. And so if we're not careful, if the church isn't careful, we push this isolational list. I'll get it. I, I don't know. You know what I mean. Mentality. You know, and the only way that I can understand this and illustrate this, and I know it's simple and I've used it before, but we were raised, uh, uh, Karen and I have been married 26 years. I hope I'm right. And... <laughs> <laughs> and we were married 26 years married 26 years and, and for the mark a lot of it we lived on the on the on the coast in Houston, Texas. And we'd drive down into Kima or to Galveston or Matagorda Island. We'd buy seafood right off the, the boats. I mean it's just fresh seafood. It's hard to get good seafood here and and uh and, and, and here's the bizarre deal. Uh a fish that has lived in the salt water all of its life. The meat is not salty. Now I have to add salt. I mean, it's a, what Paul's talking about is not being isolated. He's talking about learn to insulate. Be in the world, not of the world. Learn to, be, to have contact with the world, but not contaminated by the world. Understand this issue of, of being insulated in your relationships and insulate and understand, acknowledge that the close relationships around you have great, and they have great power in your life. And, and I've told you the greatest commentary on Scripture is Scripture itself. And we can go through 1 Corinthians and don't have time because we've got a lot of ground to cover and, and I'm already behind. And, but Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he told them to go shop at the markets where non-believers shop. He told them to go into the homes and have dinner where, un, where, where unbelievers were there and unbelievers because how are we going to influence a world if we isolate? How are we going to influence a world? How are we going to change a city if we, if we just isolate and we wall off and we don't want to get involved? And he went even further and he said, he, he says, you need to associate with the world. Don't isolate. But be able to have contact without being contaminated. And he even went so far to say, hey, listen, if you're in a spiritual mismatch, if you're married to a non-believer, if you're a believer and you're married to a non-believer, whether you started out that way or whether you got married both as non-believers and one of you became a believer, then Paul says stay in the marriage. The believer is to stay in the marriage unless the non-believer says, I don't want to be a part of it. He says, how do you know that you might be the one to lead them and to influence them to Christ? So I just want you to know, Paul never pushed isolating. Jesus said, we are salt of the earth. How can the salt permeate the, permeate the meat and give flavor if it stays in the shaker? I'm telling you, there are a lot of Christians, they love the shaker. And they talk about everybody else that's not in the shaker. Jesus, one of Jesus' last prayers for believers, John 17, 15. He asked his father, he says, I, I, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. But here's what I ask, that you keep them from the, holy, the, the evil one. I ask that you insulate them. Not isolate. That you insulate them. See, there's a big difference in, in close associations. There's a big difference in, in, in those close relationships that influence you versus the, the casual relationships. And to be unequally or to be yoked means this, to be tied together in close relationships. 
It means tied together to close relationships that last for a long period of, of time. And 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul was writing and giving them some instructions. And, and he said this, that, that so many people are, are... Well, let's just read it. Here's what he says. He says, don't be deceived. And so many people are deceived in the same way. Don't be deceived. I just want you to know bad company ruins, destroys, trashes, good morals. And I tell you, I don't understand that. But I see it lived out all the time. That how you can take someone that's godly and you can take someone that's, man, they want to please God and you put them with a non-believer, you put them with close relationships that have power in their life. It'll destroy their character. I'm starting to hear a ring or something up here. Uh, it will destroy. It will destroy their character. And I don't even understand that. I hear people all the time say, well, I'll get involved. And don't worry. They won't, they won't affect me. Listen, let me tell you something. This verse, this verse is saying, you know what? If you're single, Don't marry a non-believer. I don't care how hot they are. <laughs> don't date them. Here's a wild statistic. You realize 100% of the people that are married dated the person they're married to? <laughs> I, I'm a genius, I know. I'm good with numbers. I meet so many people that say, well, you know what? He's hot. She's hot. She's cute, funny. We just love each other. We'll never get married. If you're a committed Christian, don't marry a nominal Christian. Man, we're just talking. It's more, I believe in God. It's more than I think God's good and there's a God and all the God talk. I can tell what you worship, not by what you say, but how you live. You want to know what someone worships? Look at the way they live. They don't value church. They don't value His Word. They don't value trying to live in purity, sexual purity, compromise, and all the other stuff going on. It will not end well. It will not be the relationship that you've ever... I mean, there'll be... Now, watch this. He goes on. Let's just see how he illustrates this. He says, For what partnership has righteous with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial was a term that was also used for Satan. It was used in the intertestament period. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, people can push back and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Believers can have a lot in common with non-believers. I mean, they may have a good personality. They may be funny. They may be nice looking. We may like the same stuff. I mean, we have the same hobbies, whether it's golf, whether it's tennis, whether it's baseball, whether it's sewing, whether it's shopping, whether it's going to movies. And, and so, but you've got to understand this. Paul is ta not talking about the unessentials. He's talking about the essentials. Paul would agree, yeah, there are, some, there are some things we can have in common with non-believers. That's agreed. 
But Paul is talking about the essentials, not the unessentials. You become unequally yoked in a marriage. The day will come when it will be difficult. Church attendance. How are we going to raise the children? How are we going to honor God with our money? Where are we going to go for entertainment? What are my TV viewing habits, computer viewing habits going to look? How am I going to keep myself sexually pure? He's not talking about the unessentials. Man, Paul is talking about the essentials. And guess what? This crosses over to friendships and relationships as well. A lot of times my generation will look at the younger generation and we'll give the younger generation a hard time. And we, well, we'll quote that verse that, that, that good company uh, uh, is corrupted by bad company. But then we'll compromise our relationships. And we'll, co- listen, men, if your close relationships the ones that are influential in your life, if those men are womanizers, the day will come you will look at women like that. Just telling you. They compromise their life and their sexual purity. The day will come. Women, if you're around some other women and all they do is trash their husbands and talk about how unromantic, how boring he is and, and how he's just worthless, the day will come you'll view your husband like they do. You've got to understand that close, influential relationships in your life will influence you. And Paul is trying to get them to understand about those close relationships. Be careful who you yoke yourself with, who you're tied together, because they have influence in your life. Second principle that he says is this. Understand that when you come into God's presence, you should leave differently. If you truly come into God's presence, if you truly connect with God, then Scripture would say that, you know what, you should never be the same. I mean, you have this different nature. Look what he does. Verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And a lot of times we look at Scripture and we say, oh, we don't have, I mean, we don't make calves and wooden images and everything. And, but boy, we have a lot of idols today that... We just kind of accept an idol as this, is whatever blocks your relationship with God, whatever has more of a hold on you than God, whatever your passion. I tell you, um, you give me your day timer and your checkbook, and I'll tell you where your priorities are. Yeah, I, mean, I, mean, that's, I mean, you can tell what a person worships, not by what they say, but where they spend their time and where they give their money. So Paul comes down and he says, For we are the temple of the living God, an idle, dead, done, unemotional, wooden, graven. But we serve, we worship the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, come in, worship me. And then go out with me. We're going to see this in just a second. And be separate, not isolation, but insulation from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Another reference to the Old Testament. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. And he says, here's the deal. Old covenant was that God was among you. New covenant, new Christian um, 
God dwells in you. God doesn't dwell a church. God doesn't dwell a building. God dwells individual. His spirit is inside of us. And Paul says, touch no unclean thing. See, it was an Old Testament reference to where, where a Jew, if a Jew was never to touch a dead body, was never to touch anyone with leprosy, was never to touch an open, open festering wound because that would make them unclean. Fact is, it alienated them from God. They had to wait seven days before they could ever worship him ever again. And so what Paul was helping them understand is that when you touch an unclean thing, it alienates you from God. How about pornography? There are men that believe that I can view online porn, movies, magazines, and it will not affect me. And you have been deceived. It influences you. How can any woman compete with that? And it's degrading. And if it changes your perception of a woman to a toy or to an object and not a person. Some people believe that, you know what? I can still have flirtations at the office with the opposite sex. I still just need to know I got it, even though I'm married. And it'll never affect me. It'll destroy you. When you begin to cross the line is when you begin to share man or woman, when you begin to share with someone of the opposite sex things that you should only be talking to your husband or your wife about. When you begin talking to someone of the opposite sex of things that you like or you, of things that you dislike about a husband or a wife, you're done. When you cross, listen, I'm just telling you, it's just my experience, an emotional affair many times is much difficult to break than a physical affair. Because there are those that believe, hey, as long as I don't cross the line physically, I'm okay. There's some people that believe that, you know what, I can go to places and I can go and, and circle in these different things and it will never affect me. And guess what? Paul would say you're, you're deceived because here's the deal that... It won't end well. It'll destroy you. And he says, you've got to understand, when you come into worship with a holy and a living God... You should never leave the same. And Paul begins talking about the referencing the Sabbath and, and Jeremiah 17. Look at this. It's just some, some pictures about the Sabbath and the pictures of that when you come into a relationship with a holy and a living God, that you should never, if you've connected with Him, you should never leave the same. Listen, let me just tell you, I am learning more and more about a Sabbath and a Sabbath rest. And I am all over our pastors right now about you better, you better have one day you call a Sabbath rest that you pull away. And so I'm just telling you, my day is Monday. Their day is usually Friday. And so here's the deal. If, 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 if you ask a pastor to, to meet with you or you need help, and they look at you and say, I'm sorry, that's my Sabbath, that's my day off, do not get mad at them. You can get mad at me if you want. 
Because if I find out about it, they're in trouble. I promise you, they know that. Because I want to be doing ministry for a long time with these guys. And I want to know that they connect with God. Here's what Jeremiah writes about a Sabbath. Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives. When you see that in the Old Testament, that means sit up, take notice. He is about ready to tell us something that you better watch out for your life. Take care of, of our lives. And do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in the gates of Jerusalem. I've been to Jerusalem. And when we took our trip, some of you are here. It changed my life greatly to understand the imagery of the Old Testament and some of the things that God had the, the people of Israel do to burn it in their mind and to drive a principle home. And so he says, in the gates of Jerusalem, and do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work. So obviously there's a difference between a burden and a work. Now, we understand the issue of work. I mean, when we were there on, on the Sabbath, the Shabbat, uh, when, you went, when we went to a hotel room, that you couldn't work would be if a Jew punched a button. So there were elevators that were odd number floors and even number floors. You just got in and you just, you just spent a long time on the elevator because it, it just stopped at every floor and you got off. And so, but he indicates that there's something different. There's a burden and work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I've commanded your father. So this is a command. Listen, you know what? You know what he was saying was this. I want one day a week that you pull away and you admit you can't do it on your own. I want one day a week that you pull away, you separate, you acknowledge, you come in and you go out with me. And so many times the reason we give in to temptation and the reason we fall, we haven't honored the Sabbath. And it's a beautiful picture of worship. You come in one day a week. You admit you can't do it on your own. And, watch this, and you be willing to lay your burdens down. Lay your burden down of your family. Lay the burden down of parenting. Lay the burden down of the decision that you have to make and you don't know what to do. You don't even have the answer. Lay the burden down of finances. Lay the burden down of a career or profession. Lay that burden down. Maybe lay the burden down of guilt for something of the past. And you come to me and you admit that you can't do it on your own. And you take, worship is taking. You want to connect with God, you get this principle. Worship is this is admitting that, God, I'm helpless before you. And I'm going to lay my burdens down. And I'm not going to carry them. Ezekiel 46, he gives another picture. Look at this. He says, when the people of the Lord come before the, uh, when the people of the, of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feast. Now, the gates of Jerusalem are huge. Long walk. We've been there. We've walked it. And uh, it's unbelievable how big it is. And so, but watch this. He says, at the Lord appointed feast, he who enters by the north gate to worship shall go out the south gate. And he who enters by the south gate shall go out by the north gate. That seems kind of strange. Seems kind of weird that, that, uh, Okay, and no one shall return by the way of the gate by which they entered, but each shall go out straight ahead. That doesn't make any sense, right, until you've been there. He says this, if you come in to worship by the north gate, you go out the south gate. 
I don't care if it's a long walk. I don't care if your chariot's over on the north side. I don't care if you're late for lunch. I need you. Here's the deal. You come in the north gate, you go out the south gate. You come in the south gate, you cross over, you go out the north gate. Why? Because God wanted the reminder to the people that when you inconvenience yourself and you got that longer walk, you remember. I don't leave worship the same way I came in. I don't go out the same way I came in. I don't go out with the same burdens. I don't go out with the same struggles. He was helping them to understand that when you come in contact with a holy and a righteous God and you truly connect with him, changes everything. I was so frustrated this last week that our building is so small, one way in, one way out. Because <laughs> I thought it'd be so cool to tell you whatever door you came in, regardless of where your car's parked, go out a different door. And when you walk to your car, you remember, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving the same way I came in. Here's the last principle that he, that, that, that he, he gave us. That if you're going to stay moral, morally pure, you have to fill your life with something that's going to counteract sin. In other words, you've got to insulate. And then he begins to cross over verse 7, chapter 1. Here's what he says. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, what promises? I'll be a dwelling among you. I will walk among you. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. I will be your father, and you will be my sons, and you'll be my daughters, and I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness, that sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ, to the completion in the fear of God. Now, now, now watch this. We are not saved by making promises to God. There's many of you that believe and have come to believe that, you know what, the way that we're saved is by making all of these promises to God. And that's why spiritually you are totally wiped out when you make a commitment, you make a promise, and you fail, you sin, you, you, you blow it. And then it rattles you with your relationship with God. Hear me, we are not saved by making promises or commitment to God. We are saved by believing His promises to us. That's how we're saved, believing that I am your child. You'll never forsake me. You'll never leave me. I mean, it's based upon his character, his promises. Man, if you want to protect your life, you have to fill your life. You have to protect your life with something that will insulate. Listen, I'm, here we go. If you're married, then in your marriage, if you want to insulate yourself from this world then you have to work at developing a loving marriage that is free from inhibitions and that is so fulfilling with intimacy and I'm not just talking sexual intimacy but I'm talking emotional intimacy 
as well. But you're not tempted. Paul dealt with this in 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse, uh, verse 1. He says, Now concerning the matters that are, which you wrote, it is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, here we go, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise, the wife to the husband. Verse 5, do not deprive anyone, do not deprive one another. You know what was happening? That the, the Corinthians were coming to Christ, and they had failed miserably at, 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 uh, at just sexual promiscuity to where they had this warped sense that sex within marriage was bad. They had guilt over their sexual history. They had guilt over their sexual past. So they were coming into the church and they were depriving one another of sex because they viewed it as being something bad. Listen, sex is good in marriage. Sex is holy. Listen, the church has been afraid to talk about this issue of sex for too long. And you know what's happened? The only people that are talking about sex are outside of the church and it's perverted. And the church needs to be willing to talk about this. I mean, this is, this is a huge command that do not deprive one another any longer except perhaps, perhaps, maybe, by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. But watch this. But then come back together. I mean, come back together. Why? so that Satan may not tempt you because of the lack of self-control. Listen, an active sex life in marriage protects you. An active sex life in marriage is good. Listen, God's not anti-sex. He created it. The only reason we have sex is because of God. Last night when I said that sex and marriage is good, I had a lady, please note that, a lady said, amen, preach on. <laughs> I told her publicly, I said, thank you so much, because women think, men, that's all you think about. I said, thank you. I said, I, in fact, is I tried to bribe her and says, can you come back to all three services and do it again? <laughs> you got to understand that, listen, I, I, man, an active sex life and marriage protects you got to be aware you got to be aware of the red flags in marriage growing distant going through the motions turning turning a covenant into a contract no longer visiting no longer talking the break of intimacy i mean marriage it takes work Karen and I a few weeks back went up to Estes Park and, and it's off season and we stayed for th three days and I mean we had just an unbelievable time of, of riding in the car together and visiting it was just us and the dog and, and, uh, and we went up there and where we stayed was an area that there was no cell phone coverage and I mean thank you Jesus glory hallelujah amen 
I mean, there were just no interruptions, and it was just, it was just us, and we rode together, and we talked, and we visited, and, and you know me, I don't like coffee, and, but Karen likes coffee, and so we would walk every morning into Starbucks, and I got to, you know, uh, I don't ever go to Starbucks except for with her, and, and I really don't like coffee, but you know what, I love my wife. And we would walk, we would walk through like the main, the main street and we would go shopping and, and I don't like to shop, but you know what? I love my wife and I haven't always been a good shopper. You know, usually I make her life miserable. I'm outside tapping my foot. Let's go. Let's, let's, you know, you know, you do it kind of grudgingly. And so this time I decided, you know what? I'm going to get into it. And, and so I got, I, I bought my first hoodie. <laughs> I mean, I mean, South Texas, you don't really need a hoodie. And so I bought a hoodie because I see all the people, you don't have it. You know what? You can't get me out of it. I mean, it, where have I been? I mean, <laughs> it's like unbelievable. I mean, as soon as I get home, Karen's like, we got to get you another hoodie. This is ridiculous. And I wouldn't recognize you unless if you're in your hoodie. I mean, you just like wear it all the time. But you know what? I don't, I don't like to shop. I don't like Starbucks except for when I'm with my wife. But I love spending time with my wife. Listen, a year and a half ago, it wiped me out. Uh, Ephesians 5.23, when it says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. So he gave his life for the church. And, and I realized that part of loving God is loving my wife. It's a spiritual act of worship. Understand the warning signs in a marriage. If there is not an active sex life going on, then I'm just telling you, there's something deeper going on. I mean, there's just something deeper going on. It's a command. It's holy. Inside of marriage. I know people that have sexual histories and sexual past and and their view of sex is perverted to where they believe that sex inside a marriage is bad because of some of the guilt and some of the stuff of the past that's from the evil one do whatever you have to do go talk to a pastor get a counselor Get books. Go to a seminar. And we've got people that have worked through porn addiction to where they were so deep into it they no longer desired their wife because she couldn't live up to what they saw on a computer screen or a video. We've had people work through the issue of an affair and there was a break of intimacy for a period as they work through the issues. This isn't a place of guilt. This isn't a place of judgment. And I just need to complete this thought. Just because there is a break in intimacy in a marriage, it doesn't give any man, any woman the right to seek sexual relationships outside that marriage. Just, let's just be clear. I know people that have been shipped out to Iraq, Iran, and their husband or their wife stayed sexually pure here. 
I know people that, the fact is, they were in our church and he's moved on in their, in their late 20s. They had a horrific traffic accident on, 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 on I-25 and Lisa was paralyzed from the neck down and he stayed sexually pure. I mean, I've heard all the junk. He wasn't meeting my needs. She wasn't meeting my needs. I'm just telling you, whatever you have to do, work through it. Whatever you have to do, have a marriage that honors God, that is fulfilling sexually, physically, emotionally in life. That when you when you look at this man you find we live in a perverted world get a close friend around you and get a close friend that, that, that believes the same things you believe loves his wife loves her husband loves the church loves his word how about some positive peer pressure that will spur you on? Get someone around you understand that the Bible is true. Can, can I just tell you this? Non-Christian statistics. People that live together in percentages disappointingly are the same Christians same same percentage of Christians live together is is non-Christians statistics you live together before marriage the divorce rate is higher it's a biblical principle how can you expect God to honor a relationship the relationship can never be what you dreamed if there's compromise Get a close friend that can hold you accountable and then practice forgiveness for yourself and for others. If there's been a moral, moral failure in the relationship, learn to forgive. Learn to walk through those issues. It's hard. I know. I've walked with a lot of couples. The thing that concerns me whenever the church talks about sex is that, that so many times the church gets such a bad rap and, and may be justified in some areas because it seems that, that the church says, well, like sex and immorality and promiscuity, that's kind of like the unpardonable sin. That's kind of like the sin that Jesus, his blood doesn't cover. I don't want to leave you like that. Remember the, uh, the woman at the well. They were trying to set up Jesus. I mean, the woman was just used. She was just a tool. Still goes on today, right? Men use women. Women, women use men. And they were using her for their own gain. And so they had a plant of Pharisees. She was a prostitute. And so because the Scripture says that, that they drug her out in the act of sex, how did they know? They had a plant. So they drag this woman out, and as far as I know, it takes two, but you can't find him anywhere. It's just her. Double standards. Strip naked. Caught in the act. And so they have her. The Pharisees are around her. And so Jesus comes up. They were intended on trapping Jesus. They thought they had him because when they asked him, what should we do with her? That if he had said stone her, aha, 
you're not loving and you're not forgiving like you claim. But if he had a said, let her go. They said, you're a Jew, you're breaking the law. And they thought they had him. And Jesus didn't even answer their question. He knelt down and he began to write. Now there's a lot of ideas about what he wrote. Some say, well, he, he wrote the name of the man, the Pharisee that was with her. I don't believe that. Others say he wrote the names of the Pharisees who had been with her that were in the crowd. I don't believe that. Here's what I believe. Jesus knelt down, and Jesus began to write the Ten Commandments in the sand. Because the Scripture said, the oldest from the youngest begin to leave. There's something about the older you get, the more aware you are of sin and failure in your life. So it says that the older to the youngest begin to leave. When everybody had left, her eyes were obviously closed. Jesus says, woman, look up and where, you, where are those that condemn you? Where are your accusers? And she looked up and she looked around and she says, none are here. And remember Jesus, after writing the Ten Commandments, had said, ye who is without sin, you cast the first stone. Here's the interesting thing about that. The one person in the crowd that could have cast the first stone didn't. Jesus. Jesus was the only one in the crowd that was without sin. Jesus was the only one in the crowd that had a right to cast the first stone. And she said, he said, where are your accusers? She said, they're not here. And he said, Neither do I. No judgment, no guilt. Go and sin no more. You cannot come in contact with a holy and a righteous God and leave the same way you came in. And she left forgiven. There's some of you here this morning that you need to feel the forgiveness of God. Whatever your sexual history, whatever your past, whatever your failings, you need to understand that there is forgiveness and there is acceptance. You said, go and sin no more. If you're involved in improper relationships, bring them to the place to where they can honor God. And you'll be amazed what he'll do in your relationship. 